The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I think the increased available uh, availability of extraordinarily lethal weaponry is what makes um, domestic violent extremism and domestic terrorism uh, such a, a, a serious priority for um, the Justice Department and DHS and of concern to the country. We are putting a, a significant amount of uh, money into um, uh, our investigations of domestic violent uh, extremist terrorist groups. Uh, we have uh, a uh, budget request of $1.6 billion for ATF uh, for the work that it does, and another uh, request for $401 million for state and local grants. We have just issued a, a notice of proposed rulemaking with respect to ghost guns, which, as you point out, uh, do not have serial numbers, uh, but equally important because they are sold as uh, kits. Uh, are not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily clear that they were subject to background checks when they were sold. So under the rule, uh, they would both be subject to background checks and the manufacturers would be required to put serial numbers on them and a uh, licensed firearms dealer who comes into possession of one uh, without a serial number would be required to put one on it. I'm Ruhini Kurup and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 14th, 2021. On Wednesday, Attorney General Merrick Garland and Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas testified on domestic violent extremism before the Senate Appropriations Committee. They talked about what they consider the most pressing threats and answered senators' questions about what their agencies are doing about them. There were also some questions about other topics, such as border security, and their testimony included opening statements and repetition. We took it all out to give you just the questions and answers on domestic violent extremism. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 14th. Garland and Mayorkas on domestic violent extremism with Noble. Secretary Mayorkas, you talked about this internal review. Uh, you have to detect and respond to domestic violent extremism within, within the Department of Homeland Security. That sends chills down my spine that we have to even be doing that. Will you commit to making the results of that review available to the Congress and the American public? Mr. Chairman, I I certainly will. It is vitally important that our department reflects the nation that we seek to achieve, protect, and and keep secure. Thank you. Attorney General Garland, I mentioned earlier you were the lead prosecutor in the Oklahoma City bombing case. And... In some ways, that feels like that was yesterday, but I'm sure even more so to you, you had a 
pretty unique perspective into our country's efforts to counter domestic violent extremism. When you commemorated the 26th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing last month, you noted that, quote, the terror we faced then is still with us. And it appears to me that the threat has evolved in part because of violent extremist groups. So my question to you, Attorney General, how would the Justice Department adapt its approach to combating domestic violent extremism to address how the threat has evolved over the past few years? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And that is an excellent question. That's what we've been uh, working on um, for several months and which what something that the Department has been working on over the years. Uh, that threat has uh, changed. Um, uh, there are a lot of different factors that um, have made it change, but of course the most significant is the ability to communicate over the Internet um, at high speed uh, and to be able to uh, communicate uh, in secret uh, through encrypted and other channels. In, in the days of Oklahoma City, uh, the, the uh, co-conspirators uh, had to meet together, uh, and it took a considerable amount of time. Uh, in addition, the degree of lethal um, uh, weaponry available now is substantially higher than it was then. Then it took uh, 2,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate to bring down that building. It would uh, take considerably less of modern explosives to do the same. Um, so that threat is uh, considerably, uh, with respect to its risk of lethality, higher than it ever was. Uh, we are using all the lessons that were learned over um, the past decades, including in those um, uh, involved in fighting foreign terrorists in the United States. We have much more robust uh, intelligence uh, situation than we had then. Uh, we have much more uh, joint sharing of information uh, between state and local uh, agencies and uh, the federal government. The FBI has joint task forces across the country uh, of about 100 or so, uh, covering every um, field office and many more. U.S. Attorney's offices likewise have uh, joint uh, uh, anti-terrorism task forces that work with uh, state and local law enforcement, uh, sharing information all the time. And we're giving out considerable amounts of grants to help the state and local and territorial and tribal uh, law enforcement uh, to up their game in recognizing these kind of threats as well. well Okay. Mr. Attorney General, federal law defines domestic terrorism as a violation of the criminal laws of the U.S. or any state that appears intended to intimidate or coerce. As I said in my opening statement, that was the case with the events of January the 6th, and the individual who committed those acts should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. I believe that. At the same time, sir... I'm trying to understand the difference between those acts and the ones perpetuated last summer by groups like Antifa and others that rioted, vandalized, and frankly terrorized cities like Portland, Minneapolis, and Washington, D.C., all in an effort to, to deliver, as they say, a message. My question is this. Sir, what is the actual difference between these acts besides the groups carrying them out, and if there is not one, how can you assure this committee and the American people that the Department of Justice, under your leadership, is pursuing all who commit such acts with equal vigor? In other words, you're not selectively prosecuting, but you're going after all lawbreakers. 
Senator, as I said in my opening statement, and as you said in your statement, the, the role of the Justice Department is prosecute, to investigate and prosecute violations of the criminal law, regardless of ideology. Uh, your quotation from um, uh, Director Ray is one I would uh, uh, join myself, that we don't care what the ideology is. Um, violations of law are, are pursued um, and um, are, are prosecuted. Um, um, I think it is fair to say that in my career uh, as a judge uh, and in law enforcement, I have not seen a more dangerous threat to democracy than the uh, invasion of the Capitol. This was an attempt uh, uh, by some, uh, and I want to be very careful to uh, uh, not ascribe it to all because every case is individually decided, uh, but uh, there was an attempt to interfere with the fundamental passing uh, element of our democracy, the peaceful uh, pa uh, transfer of power. And if there has to be a hierarchy of things that we prioritize, uh, this would be the one we prioritize uh, because it is the most dangerous threat to our democracy. But that does not mean that we don't focus on other threats and that we don't uh, focus on other crimes. We do, and we don't care about the ideology uh, behind them. Is rioting and uh, pil pilfering and all of this in our cities where it breaks the law, is that subject to prosecution? Of course. Uh, anything that breaks Just the law. Just like is, any other break. Anything that breaks the law is subject and to prosecution. It may not be subject to federal prosecution. There has to be a federal uh, crime involved, but... Um, uh, if it breaks the law, of course, it's subject to But prosecution. a lot of it could be subject to federal It could. Yes, absolutely. absolutely it could. And the Justice Department looks for where there are violations of federal crimes. Attorney General, you've identified the dilemma of democracy where we state unequivocally you can believe you, what you care to believe. That's your right in this country, this free country. But when you take action in pursuance of your beliefs, then we have to take a critical eye toward that action to determine whether or not it has broken the law and endangers the rights of others. During the January 6th insurrection, New York Police Department Officer Thomas Webster has been charged with assaulting a D.C. Metropolitan Police Department officer during the attack. Body camera footage shows Webster attacking the Metropolitan Police Department officer with a metal flagpole, tackling him and trying to rip off his face shield and gas mask. This raises a question which is painful to consider, but we have to consider, and that is whether or not in the ranks of law enforcement, either at the federal level or state and local level, there are those who would use their political beliefs in, in a manner uh, which are inconsistent, which is inconsistent with uh, your earlier statement. What are your thoughts about how we can deal with this? Uh, well, you, you uh, put your finger on uh, the most difficult problem we have, which is balancing First Amendment, free association, free speech rights with protection uh, of our communities uh, against uh, criminal acts. Um, within the Justice Department itself, we are uh, beginning our own review of our procedures uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been discussing how to go about this. The Deputy Attorney General has met with the heads of all of our law enforcement agencies to determine how we can carefully uh, vet our own employees. Again, uh, always being mindful of First Amendment and free associational rights. 
um, but at the same time, uh, being careful that uh, we uh, don't have people in our ranks who would commit uh, criminal acts uh, or who are uh, not able to carry on uh, their duties. Um, so that's one set of things looking within ourselves. Um, and the second, our, uh, we have, have uh, with respect to our joint ta terrorism task forces, we have a vetting procedure like we have for our own agents with respect to careful backgrounds. Um, but with respect to law enforcement of the local and state level, this would require um, using some of our grant money uh, for the purpose of incentivizing um, uh, anti-domestic uh, uh, violent extremist training uh, people so that uh, law enforcement is aware of what to look for uh, and of how to go about um, um, the kind of training necessary to uh, make sure that people who are involved in it are excluded from the ranks. Thank you. Secretary Mayorkas, uh, Senator uh, Shelby raised a question earlier about 19,000 people who were caught and released uh, by your agency at the southern border, and I, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. And would you also comment on the chart that says there are thousands of migrant children in U.S. custody so that the record can be clear as to whether that is accurate? Thank you, Senator Durbin. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, our priority is to secure the border. In a time of pandemic, we are employing uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, specifically the Center for Disease Control's Title 42 authority to expel families and single adults. We made a decision um, because the president and this administration is dedicated not only to a safe and orderly immigration system, but one that is humane as well, to not expel children. Um, families who are not able to be expelled are placed in immigration proceedings pursuant to the law. Does that mean they have a court date? Uh, that is indeed the case. They do have a court date. And if they are not able, uh, we are not able to identify a court date at the time uh, that they are apprehended in, in a Customs and Border Protection facility, a Border Patrol station. Uh, they are issued a notice to appear uh, at an Immigration and Customs Enforcement facility. With respect to the photograph that I um, uh, have trouble seeing, but I do, um, uh, I, I can discern uh, what it is, we have focused our efforts on ensuring uh, that children are moved as quickly as possible from a border patrol station uh, to a the shelter and care of the Department of Health and Human Services. I have repeatedly stated that a border patrol station is no place for a child. We have uh, made dramatic um, improvement in the movement of those unaccompanied children to the Department of Health and Human Services. We've reduced the time in Border Patrol custody from a height of 133 hours on average on March 28th to an average below 30 hours as I sit here and testify uh, today. And those facilities are far better than a Border Patrol station, and we are likewise reducing the time that a child spends in an HHS facility so that we can unite that child with a parent, legal guardian, or family relative qualified sponsor here in the United States. But you do not forcibly remove children from their families, do you? We absolutely do not and continue the cruel and, un and uh, extraordinarily um, inhumane policy of the past. 
and you do make every effort to establish a reunification possibility. Uh, we are dedicated to that. We are very proud of the fact that we united, we reunited four families last week, and uh, I want to acknowledge that that is only the beginning, Senator. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Attorney General, welcome. I commend you and the Department of Justice for seeking to identify and prosecute those responsible for the terrible riots and attack on our Capitol on January 6th. As the chairman mentioned, starting last summer, our country also experienced attacks threatening other significant government institutions, such as a courthouse, police stations. That occurred in Minneapolis and in what we in Maine call the other Portland. You have made very clear that the ideological outlook of the individual committing these alleged crimes is not important to the Department of Justice. But what resources has the department dedicated to identifying and prosecuting the individuals responsible for the violent acts last summer um, that were aimed at institutions like courthouses and police stations. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, 
and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, uh, as, as you might expect, I know more about the resources we're putting into January 6th because most of those resources have been put in on my watch during the time I've been here. I, I wasn't the Attorney General nor in the Department of Justice in the summer. So I'm not completely familiar with the resources that were put in uh, uh, during that period. But um, the U.S. Attorney's offices in uh, both uh, on the, in the other Portland um, and in uh, Minneapolis are continuing to work those cases, as, are the, as is the FBI field offices in both of those cases. And I have not heard any suggestion that insufficient uh, resources are available um, for those uh, uh, continuing uh, prosecutions. 
If you uh, could get back to me with more specifics on that, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, I'll ask my staff to contact yours. You have described uh, information, uh, misinformation rather, and disinformation as fueling a great deal of this violent extremist activity. In your view, uh, would a commission uh, to provide information literacy tools that people can use to make sounded judgments about what they're seeing on social media, and this would apply to all communities, but there's a particular concern with veterans and service members. Would such a commission be useful, Mr. General, for police? I think all forms of uh, civil uh, civics education that uh, um, help provide uh, education um, about uh, misinformation that uh, can lead to radicalization or misinformation in general would be helpful. Thank you. Mr. Secretary? Senator Reid uh, would um, welcome the opportunity to learn the specifics. We're eager uh, to have additional resources and additional vehicles to address misinformation and disinformation. I should say that our department is partnering with the Department of Education uh, to develop a program in the K through 12 arena. And so to amplify that effort, uh, we would welcome the opportunity to study the commission of which you speak. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Mr. Secretary, uh, we have also seen increasing evidence that Russia is using this type of misinformation and disinformation to support and amplify a message of violence that we saw in Charlottesville in uh, the killing of George Floyd, uh, designed to uh, disunite this country, inflame racial tensions, and to undermine, in many respects, our democracy. Uh, and a recent joint uh, assessment indicates that they are using the January 6th uh, assault on the Capitol in such a manner to amplify narratives in furtherance of their policy, which is to disrupt and disunite and to you know, indeed uh, destroy, if they could, our democracy. So. Are you concerned about this nexus between Russia and these uh, domestic terrorists? Very much so. Senator, we are intensely focused um, on the information with respect to Russia's effort to sow discord and disunity uh, in our country. And, of course, we are bringing in an all-of-government um, effort to respond uh, uh, to that. And I would welcome the opportunity to brief you in a, in a more appropriate forum uh, to address the information we have in that regard. Uh, in this forum, can you give an indication of what you think the best way might be to, to do that? Um, Senator, uh, uh, some of the actions that we have taken uh, certainly are public. We have imposed sanctions. We have um, attributed uh, to Russia publicly uh, the actions uh, that we have learned uh, they have committed. Those are two uh, examples that I certainly can speak of in a public forum. Thank you. One of my impressions from uh, being on the Armed Services Committee is that there is a disconnect between our uh, defense-related intelligence services, the Cybercom, NAS, uh, CIA, et cetera, uh, many because of constitutional issues of the inability of these agencies to operate in the United States. Has that left a, a seam in which it were, is being exploited, and are we making efforts to close that seam constitutionally? Uh, Senator, you are correct in um, addressing the fact that some authorities 
uh, are domestic in nature, others are not. Um, the issue of seams, of course, is a long-standing one. We are very, very focused on closing any seams uh, that remain or any residual uh, of past um, issues. We're very, very focused on and developing resources to address that. Uh, well, Mr. Secretary and, and Mr. Attorney General, if there are uh, legislative initiatives that are required to close these seams or to uh, disrupt the flow of disinformation, please uh, forward those to not just this committee, but to other committees of jurisdiction and interest. Following the events of January 6th, a couple weeks ago, the FBI executed a search warrant on a couple living in Homer, Alaska, related to the investigation um, surrounding the events of January 6th. The search warrant was unsealed just last week. Uh, we've had an opportunity to take a look at it. We now understand that the wife was or has been identified as a person that the FBI uh, believes may have been connected to the uh, laptop of, of Speaker Pelosi based on a picture and uh, at least two tips. The couple in Homer adamantly assert that this is a case of mistaken identity. Um, certainly a lot of back and forth going on as to, to, to whether or not that is the case. But understanding that this investigation is ongoing, how are the Department of, of Justice and, and Homeland Security working with the FBI and others to ensure that while we have a thorough investigation that is ongoing, that it respects the constitutional rights of, of all, uh, all Alaskans in this case, but all Americans. But uh, part of this is just to ensure that public trust in law enforcement is maintained during the, the course of this investigation. There's a lot of discussion about how long is it going to take until this investigation is concluded. You have a, a small town in a state with a small population, and there's a lot of discussion uh, about the merits of this going forward. So if you can address that, please. Look, I, I think this is the central question for all of law enforcement, to always be careful uh, to balance. Uh, balance isn't even the right word. The right word is to pursue law enforcement objectives uh, consistent with the uh, statutes of the United States and the Constitution. This is exactly what we uh, endeavor to do in Oklahoma City, uh, uh, facing an enormous number of deaths and uh, injuries. Uh, but we took care uh, at each step uh, to make sure that the law was followed. We are doing the same with respect to the January 6th investigation. Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia is uh, the lead force along, uh, on the prosecution side, uh, and the FBI on the law, on the, um, uh, law enforcement side. Both are subject uh, um, to ongoing supervision in, by the National Security Division in the Justice Department, uh, by the Deputy Attorney General uh, and myself. Um, um, so... We take your point completely. I, I don't. I can't talk as you as you obviously recognize about a particular case, um, but we look carefully, and um, uh, we will revise our uh, uh, perceptions uh, as new facts uh, arise. I can't tell you how long this will take. Uh, this is only at this point around 130, 100, I guess 145 days or so 
It's relatively short in the lifetime of, a, of an investigation, uh, particularly one that has required uh, uh, such a large number of um, uh, separate investigations in different places as far flung as Alaska, and a huge amount of uh, data to be uh, examined in a video uh, that's been made available. Um, so it, this is, uh, the investigation is not over, and um, we will uh, pursue uh, each lead uh, till we're uh, confident that we have uh, reached the end. Today. Um, Secretary Mayorkas, you noted in your testimony that you're increasing uh, your department's efforts to assess how domestic extremists are leveraging social media and other online platforms. Can you tell us more about those efforts? Thank you very much, Senator. The, the challenge uh, really is, uh, number one, uh, the anonymity with which people are able to navigate through social media and uh, really exploit uh, the medium uh, for improper and unlawful purposes, and two, the speed with which uh, they can do so. And so what we are uh, doing is dedicating analysts uh, to understanding uh, the narratives uh, that are being communicated on the social media platforms and uh, identifying linkages between those narratives and um, indicators of intention to commit violent acts. Right now, we are doing that uh, through the human resource, not yet leveraging algorithms, but we are, of course, uh, uh, planning different methodologies as we proceed in this endeavor. I'm an Attorney General Garland. Um, you um, and other leaders, in fact, uh, Chris Ray at the FBI, has also spoken about um, self-radicalization. Um, and I assume that what that really means is uh, folks who are largely sitting at home and consuming hours and hours of uh, extremist content through uh, YouTube and Facebook and other social media platforms. Would you agree that if platforms have algorithms that are actually designed um, to hold the attention uh, of viewers and to engage them by delivering more and more extremist content to people who start going down these so-called rabbit holes, um, then they, perhaps unintentionally, are fueling some of this problem, and we should take some actions to help address that challenge. Well, I agree with Secretary Mayorkas that uh, what's happening on our social media platforms certainly uh, uh, can lead to self-radicalization. Uh, the precise mechanism, uh, I'm no expert on, and I wouldn't want to pretend to be. Um, but um, self-radicalization does, uh, we, you know, we've seen it um, um, most uh, uh, dangerously with respect to uh, uh, those uh, who are influenced by jihadist websites, uh, who watch those websites over and over again and uh, become persuaded and then self-radicalized. and. This accelerates very quickly. Uh, somebody can go uh, from a circumstance where no one around them thinks that they are likely to be a, a violent extremist uh, to, to one who uh, then acts out. Um, um, but uh, um, and, and I think that this is the way in, in, in modern society people get this information is uh, through the Internet. And I notice uh, an increase in budgetary requests um, in both of your departments to fund grant programs that build state and local capacity and to increase funding for U.S. attorney's offices. Uh, will any of that go towards further research on this exact point? Um, and will any of that go uh, to help focus on uh, what the mental health issues are that might make people uh, more vulnerable to recruitment or radicalization and um, what the uh, local initiatives might be that could help uh, tamp down or deter radicalization? 
If I may, uh, if, I, if I may take that, Senator uh, Coons, uh, a, a few um, efforts, if I may. Number one, we help resource centers of excellence uh, to conduct research in precisely the area that you have identified. We have grant programs uh, to equip and enable local communities uh, to conduct research and also to develop programs that are in fact focused on mental health issues and, and, and a holistic approach to the challenge that we face. That is precisely one of the reasons why we actually changed an office's name to become the Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships. It's about prevention first and foremost, which does include mental health uh, efforts and partnership, working with our state, local, tribal, territorial partners to equip them in the communities to develop these programs, to develop educational uh, efforts, as well as response and resilience uh, programs. Thank you. Anything you wanted to add? Yes, and the, and the same for us. So the National Institute of Justice uh, did a study on, on, on just this topic, understanding domestic radicalization and terrorism, which came out last year, which I mentioned in my written statements. We have uh, $4 million um, in our uh, budget request for them to continue and to do a further analysis of root causes of radicalization. Uh, Secretary Mayorkas, we look forward to seeing you before the subcommittee later this year to talk about the uh, department's budget request. Uh, thank you both for your service to protect the country. Um, I have two questions, uh, three if I have time. Um, the first is with respect to comments that you both made regarding uh, the access that domestic extremist groups have to weapons and bomb-making materials. Um, I would note that um, the incredibly disturbing story of the 13 individuals in Michigan who were very far along in a plot to kidnap and try for treason the governor of Michigan had in their possession upwards of 70 firearms, um, an arsenal that included many AR-15 style rifles, ghost guns, guns that uh, are designed by their nature to be untraceable and 2,000 rounds of ammunition. Um, I, I, I would, I'll direct this to you, Attorney General Garland, because you are undergoing right now a, a review about the ways in which we can make sure that firearms are traceable for law enforcement purposes. Um, you volunteered this in your testimony, as I did th think, as I think Secretary Mayorkas did. Um, what are your concerns regarding the ability of these groups to arm themselves with significant weaponry and weaponry that increasingly is very difficult, if not impossible, to trace? So uh, I appreciate your picking up on the, on the point that I was making. I think the increased available uh, availability of extraordinarily lethal weaponry is what makes um, domestic violent extremism and domestic terrorism uh, such a, a, a serious priority for um, the Justice Department and DHS and of concern to the country. Um, we are putting a, a significant amount of uh, money into um, uh, our investigations of domestic violent uh, extremist terrorist groups. Uh, we have uh, a uh, budget request of $1.6 billion for ATF uh, for the work that it does, on this, and, and another uh, request for $401 million for state and local grants. On the specific question you asked about traceability, we have just issued a, a notice of proposed rulemaking with respect to ghost guns, which, as you point out, uh, do not have serial numbers 
but equally important, uh, they uh, are, uh, because they are sold as uh, as um, kits. Uh, are not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily clear that they were subject to background checks when they were sold. So under the rule, uh, they would both be subject to background checks and the manufacturers would be required to put serial numbers on them and a uh, licensed firearms dealer who comes into possession of one uh, without a serial number would be required to put one on it. I, I will remind the committee um, on this general topic that right now, individuals that are on what we would commonly refer to as the terrorist watch list, uh, are able to buy weapons in uh, gun stores today. They're not automatically added to the list of those that are prohibited uh, to purchase weapons. Um, it's inconceivable to me that at least on that topic, we cannot find common ground. Um, turning to the question of the border, Secretary Mayorkas, um, Senator Shelby raised the question of border security at a hearing about domestic violent, uh, domestic extremism. Uh, and I wanted to sort of ask you to give an assessment um, of the risk of terrorists entering this country through the southern border. Important to remember that undocumented immigrants uh, in this country have a lower arrest rate than U.S. citizens. Um, and from what I can understand, um, there's fairly scant evidence that international extremist groups are using the southwest border as a mechanism to bring um, their members into the country. What, what evidence do we have that the southwest border is being used by um, international extremist groups or domestic extremist groups to uh, try to bring individuals into this country to do harm to American citizens? Uh, Senator, we don't um, have any evidence to suggest uh, that the threat uh, on the border with respect to uh, foreign terrorists is any greater today than it was last year, the year prior, or the years over the past uh, uh, decade. The fact of the matter is that we are vigilant in guarding against uh, foreign uh, terrorism, uh, terrorist influences uh, through all avenues, not just, of course, our land borders, uh, but uh, uh, air and maritime. That is what we do, and fortunately, we have extraordinary capabilities to address it. There's been reporting of Americans involved with those right-wing extremist groups in the U.S. communicating online and sometimes traveling overseas for training with other extremist groups, and not just in Russia, although we know of at least one leader of uh, the base who is has resettled to St. Petersburg, Russia. So can you talk about the extent to which um, you're seeing an increase, or if you are seeing an increase in those connections and what we're doing to, to try and address that yes, uh, for either of you. Yes, Senator. Um, well, you're right that, uh, to be concerned. Um, um, I, I can't give a sense of the magnitude of the problem, um, but I do think that uh, uh, we have to worry about uh, interactions between um, uh, domestic violent extremists, particularly uh, racially motivated uh, and ethnically motivated ones, uh, where there are similar groups, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, with uh, similar uh, ideological um, uh, bents, uh, sharing information uh, um, 
Um, and uh, we have the benefit in, in that respect of being able to uh, coordinate with our uh, uh, national intelligence partners, with, and the director of national intelligence is very seized with this problem. Uh, the seam that was talked about uh, before um, um, in one of the other questions is not uh, is one that we have worked very hard to eliminate where there is a, a foreign aspect uh, of the risk and uh, our intelligence agency partners uh, whose eyes are abroad are, um, are being very cooperative in that respect. But we are looking at this problem and uh, it is very much on our mind. And if I can add one uh, point, uh, uh, Senator, if I may, uh, the Attorney General and I participated in a, a multi-nation uh, ministerial, and of course, uh, the issue of um, violent extremism was uppermost in our minds, and it's something that we share with our partners and are working very closely together with them to address. Um, one of the potential sources, Secretary Mayorkas, do you think that statements made by public officials claiming that the 2020 presidential election was stolen or the result of fraud increased the threat of violence by domestic extremists? Have we seen that as, as we're pursuing, also for the Attorney General, as we're pursuing the cases against those people involved on January 6th? Has that been something that we've heard from the defendants? Senator, um, uh, first... Yes, we can do both. We can secure our border and we can effectively combat uh, the rise of domestic violent extremism. Is there any evidence that elected official <clears throat> statements have contributed to that? Uh, we, we, we do see in the narratives that we have studied uh, the fact that um, false narratives attributed to public officials um, gain uh, traction in social media. At this uh, point in time, um, I understood the response to Senator Shaheen's uh, question, um, and certainly this Intelligence Committee report indicates that um, those kind of false narratives have dangerous consequences. Is that not true? Most, most certainly, and it's something that we're very focused on addressing. False narratives, uh, as I mentioned, um, create um, uh, strands of dialogue that we see propagated on social media, and then we see those um, strands picked up on, and we are uh, detecting connectivity between those strands and an intention to commit violent acts, and that is what we are focused on. Mr. Attorney General. Yeah, so if you put it at that level of generality, rather than um, uh, the specific questions about people being investigated in a particular circumstance, it is right, um, as the intelligence community has reported, uh, that uh, particularly um, um, uh, those who uh, end up um, uh, committing acts of domestic violence get ideas uh, from the Internet and, and uh, from statements, and uh, where there are false narratives and false statements, those are the kind of things that can, uh, depending upon the, uh, the person in the end who acts out, uh, lead to um, uh, violence. Look, I disagree with uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney on a lot of things, um, but I think everybody needs to stand with her regardless of political party um, when she stands up to talk uh, about the truth. Um, and what she is saying in her floor remarks is squares fully with the finding from this intelligence community report that both your departments uh, participated in. Um, and it, it, the report doesn't, it's not ambiguous here. Uh, it says 
these kind of false narratives will almost certainly spur domestic violence extremists to try to engage in violence this year. So, Mr. Chairman, I would just encourage uh, all of our colleagues to recognize uh, that words matter. I mean, people have a First Amendment right, and they can say what they want, but they should also recognize uh, the very dangerous consequences of the false narratives that continue to be peddled around this place um, and coming from the former president. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and share us on Twitter and Facebook. As always, thanks for listening.